Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you are new to the channel, hello. Good to meet you. Thank you for coming. If you're returning, welcome back. So glad to have you here again with us. Uh, if you haven't done it, hit like and subscribe. It's a passive gesture that goes a very long way. Joining me today is the faceless voice of reason, M2 Song. Hello, hello. You can't see it, but I'm giving a hair toss. Uh, it's so sad no one can see because I saw and it looked it looked very nice. Thank you, sir. And I know you're walking around New York like Jill Scott. Living my life like it's golden. Living my life like it's golden. <laughs> Wearing that outfit from the real love video. Sure. So if anyone wants to know what MT looks like, just think of uh, a shorter Mary J. Blige with natural colored hair wearing the outfit from the real love video I don't know where you even got that from <laughs> just walking around New York in Timberlands and leggings As baseball jersey yeah puff coat real love <laughs> <sighs> well let's just get right down to it <clears throat> I wrote a piece recently in I, can I introduce the guy, Tucson? Or did he just get in on his own? <laughs> Someone's excited. Jesus Christ. Please welcome Derek Varn. Look at this guy. Look at him. He just I was going to introduce the guy so he can have a proper introduction, right? We're giving him some time. He's like, I have, I have to get my tea. <laughs> he said it like James Earl Jones. When no one's looking, Varn talks like James Earl Jones, by the way. I just drop three octaves. I, I, I choose to, to to broadcast in this weird baritone, scratchy voice that I naturally have. I totally, that's totally a choice. Yeah, it's real. It's really James Earl Jones. But uh, James Earl Jones from the movie Soul Man. That's the only, you know, you don't get Darth Vader. You just get uh, scoldy James Earl Jones. Um. Well, let, let's go, Varn. Uh, I know you saw some of the notes for the show today. Yes. And I know you know that we're going to kick it off with uh, the Poet Laureate, Jean Bon Jovi. The great American poet Jean Bon Jovi once said in his 1986 work, Wanted Dead or Alive, it's all the same, only the names have changed. He wasn't talking about the myth of political discourse, but the monotony of touring melodramatics aside i use this passage in a recent piece i wrote in sublation titled the same as it ever was because regardless of your loyalty to a political party both democrats and republicans tend to sell similar products with slightly different branding after a while it's just coke versus pepsi but with the flair of a championship boxing match take the recent shooting in kansas city after the super bowl winning chiefs parade did you follow any of that at all there a little bit a common occurrence for uh, major sporting leagues when a team wins a championship. 
At the conclusion of the parade, after the players drunkenly thanked the fans in a massive celebration, where the Kansas City Police Department estimated around a million people showed up, shots were fired. Some people didn't even run because they thought it was fireworks. In all, 22 people were hit with bullets. One woman, a well-known radio DJ in the area, was struck dead. Mother of two, Lisa Lopez Galvan, hosted the Taste of Tejano radio program. Many of the injured in the melee were children. A situation like this is perfect for media to run with. You can filibuster for hours about the perils of firearms or of mental illness unchecked. But information on the story was extremely limited. Facts be damned. When you sit at the pulpit of punditry, your righteous indignation will be interpreted as heartfelt and caring. Your dialogue at absentee politicians to an audience that believes that institutions have failed them the audience tends to lean into these words you've created a story where we don't know what took place no one has time to find out what actually happened create the news make the story if your station is on the more liberal side then it's about gun control if you're on the more conservative side then it's about mental illness on my drive to and from L.A. for our Kami Valentine's hang, a total of about nine and a half hours in my car, I heard this story on sports radio nonstop. Since there were no details, it was treated as a lone wolf shooter, an incel maybe? Or could it have been someone with some sort of mental illness that propelled them to act so heinously? In my nine hours of driving, one sentiment that seemed to be bipartisan, a bipartisan line that signaled that you were one of the good guys was that you were fed up with mass shootings. And the time for thoughts and prayers were over. We need government officials to do something. They never do say what that thing is to be done. These dramatic cries of discontent may spark ire in the listening base, and they really do nothing to create a reasonable dialogue around guns. Of all the crocodile tears, tiered monologues I heard, not one mentioned capitalist production. We live in the United States of America, where a minority of Americans are gun owners. According to a 2020 Pew Research study on gun ownership in the United States, only 32% of adults own a gun. Yet America as a whole owns about 46% of worldwide civilian firearms. That means that the manufacturing and sale of guns are big business. That means fear is big business. No one's buying all these guns to shoot clay pigeons after all. Since there is such a profitable industry centered around guns and the idea of safety, they're to be seen as a means to an end a great and necessary equalizer. There are more guns than people in the United States. Capitalist production again was never uttered, just fake frustration and calls for politicians to do something. With what? Once news broke about the nature of the incident, did you even, do you know what actually happened, Derek? Uh, big gun. <laughs> it was, kids, it was kids, two juveniles were shooting at each other. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, an argument between two juveniles. The discourse became less about federal gun legislation and the mentally ill and shifted to morality and criminality in democratic or blue cities. 
but not so much on sports radio, but on the bigger news outlets, most of the right-wing variety. Another signal that the right has the time uh, for tough-on-crime legislation. According to most polls, that legislation is wanted by most citizens on a bipartisan level. Immigration is also one of these issues that um, can get seen through the prism of partisan politics from the recent sublation article. While Trump was delivering his racist hot takes on immigrants from Central and South America and pumping up the cruelty of U.S. border policy, Obama was already known to many immigration advocates as the deporter-in-chief. He was masterful at political theater, rhetorically saying he was a friend to asylum-seeking migrants and signaling to the right that his administration would still be tough on the immigration issue. These bipartisan games are best illustrated by his Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program. DACA allowed people who were brought to the United States as minors a temporary stay that could be renewed every two years, barring certain age and criminal restrictions. It did not, however, include a pathway to citizenship. DACA recipients can't receive federal benefits, Social Security, or college financial aid. Some states would allow DACA recipients to have a driver's license, but there would be a designation on the ID to prevent them from voting. At the same time, as the as he instituted this uh, extraordinarily limited program, Obama was earning that deporter-in-chief moniker with a vengeance. He deported 2.5 million people. Like the idea that police were defunded around the country in 2020, the notion that Democrats gave us open borders was a fantastical form of historical revisionism. That didn't stop it from playing well for national television audiences on the right. So I have my good friend, Derek Varn, MT, to discuss the discussion, this illusion of political discourse. And I know for a fact that you actually work. Do you still work with uh, immigrant families, Derek? Yeah. In, in Utah? So you know about yeah. this all too well, especially in the state of Utah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the state of Utah has been wild lately. Um, since this year, having a lot of symbolic on school censorship, um, satanic panic 2.0 or 3.0, depending on how you want to go about it. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it, the, the big thing here is this showdown. In some ways, it's exactly what you would predict if you were playing a red queen game and one side is playing by self-imposed rules and the other side doesn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. um, but I, some, in some ways I think that lets people off the hook a little bit too much. Um, but let's, let's talk about this right now. I mean, there's a whole showdown with like what, like 20 States declaring that they support Texas uh, defying the conservative Supreme court, you know, enemy of conservatives, the, the Trump Supreme court, um, <laughs> on cutting down some razor wire around a particular section of the border that is actually that the border control wants must be able to quickly access to also suppress immigrants. Let's be quite honest. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, you know, we we live in a this should actually probably trip the law Texas versus what well, the Supreme Court ruling Texas versus right which makes that kind of sedition an act of war, um, 
not that I would want that sort of thing, but it is it is actually uh, what it could trip. It's a leftover of the Civil War, for those of you who don't know, um, and also involved Texas, mm-hmm. hence in the name. Um, but these stunts are just stunts, and they're not new stunts. If you go back into the 90s uh, and the 70s, you'll see similar kinds of stunts. It's just they're getting bigger and bigger in their spectacular nature. Um, and also a lot of them are are before social media media cycles, so people don't recognize that they're not particularly new moves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the mass shooting one, mass shootings have been increasing since the late 1990s, right? Yes. Um, but did you know when the high point of mass shootings was and except for the the very recent last five years when before this last oh i don't know when the 1980s oh no oh the work-related shootings oh uh, work-related shootings and school shootings there was a ton of school shootings in the 1980s you didn't hear about like it mondays that was in the 80s yep and we didn't hear that much and a lot of the reforms that people think were post-columbine like uh clear book bags um uh, metal detectors at the door, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they start in the early 90s. Um, the framing is different. Instead of being framed as random mass shooting, they're framed as gang violence, gang violence in the schools. Uh, and some of it was gang violence. I mean, you know, so the framing wasn't totally pulled out of anyone's ass, but some of it we don't actually completely know why it happened. Yeah. Given that most of that was only reported on in local media, it didn't actually induce the kind of panics we see now. So I bring that up always to say that, like, we've had this debate around gun control for a while. I remember reading um, something about uh, John Fogarty. I know this is going to sound strange, but he was talking about the number of guns per person in America and why he gave up his guns, even though he was a moderate-ish, conservative-ish person um, in 1969. Damn. All right. So these discourse patterns, while they have all gotten worse and more extreme with the exception of crime, I think we do have to be honest and say, like, while crime is up from its aught teens levels um, and aughts levels, it's still down from like most of the 20th century after the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know it. Like before that, no one has any idea what the crime rate would have been in in the 19th century. We weren't recording that. Frontier um, justice, not, for frontier justice, right? <laughs> right. Um, which is not to say things are getting worse. I think they are. It's just that what we're seeing is like a spiral, where everything repeats and moves. You know, I I do feel that way, especially with with the way the shooting was portrayed. Because again, as I said in the in the in the opening, you know, you hear over and over these monologues um and you can tell what side someone sits on the monologue right if if they're mm-hmm. talking about it's these mentally ill people we need to have checks for the mentally ill and it's like there's guns 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 kill people we need gun reform and blah 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 and you know where they sit on the thing but when it came out that it was like kids beefing everybody no one knew how to act almost and it just got quiet and now we're not talking about gun control. We're not talking about mentally ill people with firearms. Because it wasn't the mass shooting that they wanted it to be. It was something a lot more common. Right. 
And then it almost felt like, well, this, you know what? The commoners came to the parade too. We have to expect. Well, I mean, this is an interesting thing. Like I would, I was just at a debate the other week, Jason. Mm -hmm. Oh, like a high school debate. I judge high school on the weekends. What was it about? Um, um, this weekend it was about, uh, what was it about? Gun violence. No way. Yeah. And, and what else was it about? Um, whether or not the United States should have some form of wealth distribution, uh, but was unclear about what that meant. Okay. Um, so people were arguing. It was actually quite funny. As a side note, people were arguing both Marxist and conservative points against UBI, and not realizing that the points they were making were contradicting each other, but they were both against UBI. It's actually quite funny. Um, uh, th- that tells you something about the way like the top ten percent of kids are going right now is like they uh, they instrumentalize everything mm-hmm. because they've been taught to, um, but they don't even understand what they're instrumentalizing. Um, to be fair, they're in high school. You wouldn't expect them to. But but to get back to the gun debate, this, uh, a kid brought up, well, there's like 500 mass shootings a year. And I was like, oh, uh, 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 what are we defining mass shootings as? Because you're referring to random shooting events that are unmotivated. But then you're going back to the three or more people shot at one time definition. Yep. Those are two very different things. Like, there's not 500 random school shootings in the United no. States. Um, and the thing about the, the shooting after the Super Bowl that's interesting is, you're right, it's much more common. There's a, a lawsuit right now where, where I believe a Latin family is school, is, or maybe a Polynesian family, is suing the school, uh, a, a school in Utah that someone I know works at um, for ignoring inter-Brown racial violence between Latin and Polynesian students and that leading to a shooting and where two kids were killed and one kid was injured, not on campus, but right off. This of isn't it. your school. It is not my school. No. Damn. Promise. So they're suing because it, the school, let me get this right. I just want to make sure I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hearing you correctly. They're suing the district or the school? Well, they're suing the school, but that's effectively suing the district, which is effectively suing the municipality. And because there were fights between brown kids and Polynesian kids, and the school. Between brown and brown. And the school didn't know how to do anything about it, or they just didn't do anything about it? Well, the parents are claiming they didn't do anything about it. I actually kind of. I'm not sure that I believe that. Mm -hmm. Um. But also, I would say a lot of these schools often do not have narratives for how to deal with racial tensions between non-white groups. So you're so so it's one of those things where because this is happening in Los Angeles too. Bill Cody off air talks about this. There's a lot of beef between Mm -hmm. black kids and and brown kids in in the school district in L.A., which it's L.A. Um, if it's black and white or Mexican and white, Polynesian and white, then you know how to handle it, right? You get your DEI experts in there and everybody watches. Well, show. not anymore, but until until about a month ago, you got your DEI experts in there. So when it's between two groups of minorities, they just they shrug their shoulders and go, boys will be boys. Like, what do they do? I, I, 
I kind of doubt it, but I will say they're probably hesitant to address it as a racial issue. They probably are going to try to address it as an interpersonal issue. Mm. Right. And this isn't new. Like we like this was a thing in the 80s, too. <clears throat> like um, and, you know, I think the family's claim is that it was, you know, right racism leading them not to take either brown group seriously, which Kind of, I mean, might even be fair. I mean, to be honest. Are they the family of the kid that was slain? They're the family of the kid that was, that survived, actually. I can't remember. This is one of those things where it's like, poor kid got hit in the spine. I mean. Oh, he's, yeah, he's in rough shape. I mean, getting shot at school is, I don't care where you go to school. I don't care if you go to Eastside High from, you know what I mean? No one expects to get shot at school. So the, the, the narrative is that. Uh, that the kid felt unsafe because of racial tensions between the two groups, and then he brought a gun in, mm. and then it escalated, and someone else had a gun. Mm. From what I understand, mm. all right. Uh, this happened two years ago. The loss is happening now. Um, I y- there were a lot more of these kinds of events in the '90s. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, like I remember some of them when I was growing up. Uh, um, and I didn't like my school, for example, didn't have gunshots, but we had gang on gang violence that involved kids sneaking into the school with glass bottles and stabbing kids. Yikes. Like, I mean, I mean, violence is going to happen. Violence is going to happen. Right. Right. I mean, it's also still I mean, that still probably only happened like once when I was in high school. My, my I don't know what on one hand in this scenario. I don't want to downplay it because any violence is too much. On the other hand, you're dealing with boys in a situation where these lethal things are readily available. Guns, sure, but also other lethal things, frankly. We have less fights than we used to have. I will say that. Like, I've broken up. Well, I can't legally break up fights anymore because because we've moved in the opposite direction on that. Uh, in Utah, there's a weird rules around that. You have to be certified to break up fights, but all you have to have is a concealed carry permit to bring a gun on campus. So I can carry a gun on campus, but I can't break up a fight. That's true, by the way. Do you just break up the fight um, like Ice Cube in Boys in the Hood? And you just show you. We got a problem just, here. Yeah, just pull out a gun. No, <laughs> I don't carry. I don't carry on campus because it's stupid. But but uh, but I could theoretically. I totally could. <laughs> like, oh God. MT, you grew up in New York. Um, I know you went to school with the cast from Juice. Now, wow. But serious, straight out of Brooklyn. What was it like for you when you were going to school back in the day? Well, my high school was a specialized high school. We didn't have metal detectors, although the school across the street did. Um, but I am from an area full of high schools and around three o'clock two, three o'clock mm-hmm. for a couple of hours. It's just all teenagers in the street. So we all kind of knew people from different schools and a lot of the schools in Queens had metal detectors and lots of violence to be had. Did you guys ever try to talk them into having a dance off instead? No, we didn't. 
didn't teach them to have a dance off. There were people in my school who had guns and knives and stuff. Were they props for theater class? No, they were not. But it's the good school where you don't expect the kids to have the guns, so no one ever checked. I feel like show me any high school and there's going to be kids with like hard drugs and guns. Yeah. Uh, gu- guns, yeah. I mean, the, the thing, I when I was uh, first started teaching in Georgia almost 20 years ago now, God, I'm old. Um, uh, we still had those zero tolerance rules, so we would send kids like who forgot to take their gun rack out of their car. They would get sent to prison. Really? Um, yeah. Even white kids, yes. Um, I thought that was well. I don't know how common hunting season is in Utah. I know how common common is in the South. I was talking about. So you talking about the South? Yeah, in the South, is super common. Yeah. Like it's hunting season. Kids just go to school with their. Yeah, but it, you know, I I taught five years after I started teaching, like five six years after Columbine. Ah, uh, so, it's a different time. Yikes. Yeah. Columbine was a game changer for a lot of stuff. Yeah, because it was white kids doing it, quite yeah. frankly. It, well, it wasn't like you said, it wasn't looked at as gang violence. I think that's mm-hmm. part of like what I wanted to get at with this show, like the way we talk about all this stuff, like to hear all these people go on and on and on. I'm like, well, no one's talking about the fact that there's just a shit ton of guns. You've built an industry around the need for a firearm and a minority of Americans own firearms. We own a lot. I mean, those people own a fuck ton of them. Yeah, I was about to say, it's, it's, you either own none or you own, like, five. Yeah, I believe the yeah, average like is seven. That's the average. Yeah, I mean, it's – I mean, back when I still carried weaponry, I had three, so right. – You only have two hands, Derek. I, Why would you have three guns? I had a bolt-action rifle and two fi- and two. Yeah, one arms. in his boot in case uh, you needed to get the drop on somebody. <laughs> no, I mean – A little pearl handle. Maybe. A little boot. pearl handle in the boot. <laughs> it's okay. You laugh. My my grandfather when he died left me a pearl handled Dillinger, which is basically only good for assassinating people. <laughs> 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 it's not even a good defense. Well, we know how those debates end on your campus. <laughs> well, Timmy, <laughs> your argument just didn't um, cut the mustard. I de-armed myself when I was 28 years old because I looked at I like sat with the stats and decided that the most likely person I was going to hurt with a gun was myself or someone I mm. cared about, so I got rid of them. Mm. But um, I do I, I have a kind of paradoxical uh, view on weaponry. I think most people should know how to use them and probably shouldn't own them. Like I can bite. You know, I know how to ride. Yeah, a bike. I don't own one. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't I think people should probably learn how to use a weapon and go to gun ranges and stuff, but they probably shouldn't own the weapon. It's it's a liability most of the time. I mean, as we saw in Kansas City. And both, how many deaths are from accident from guns? I mean, the, the most likely person to kill yourself with a gun is you. First from suicide, then for then from accident, then the next likely person you are to get killed is your partner mm-hmm. by you with a gun, and then after that it's by a cop mistaking you with a gun, and then it's other gun violence, like so it's in that order. I mean, cop is four, but at least last time I checked, it may go up and down. I don't know. There's kids in there too, somewhere in there. Oh, oh kids, kids shoot, kids. 
again, I think that kids are still factored in. The biggest thing that kids end up doing is they accidentally shoot, shoot themselves, themselves or they commit or, or they harm themselves yeah. deliberately. Right. Also not understanding that this shit is permanent. You know, like you're still developing your brain. And to have a weapon that is a game ender for everybody, that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around, especially when you're impulsive. We're all impulsive young people at one point in our life. And we think... Little Wayne shot himself. Yeah. He was, what, 13? Uh, I think he was older. I'm going to tell the story. Uh, So, I am... uh... I'm going to intervene on this one because uh, um, I can't go into details because of uh, FERPA, but um, I lost my first student mm. under my care this in the last month um, for something mm. similar. Wow. I'm sorry to hear about that, Derek. And I can say this because uh, it's vague. Um, and I'm being very careful how I word this to protect families' privacy, right? And most of you don't know where I work anyway. But um, we've had more attempts in the last three years that have led to hospitalizations. Not successful, all right? The, the successful one, unfortunately, I've had to deal with one indirect and one direct. Um, indirect is I had to deal with, I taught a witness of a, of a successful. But... Um, uh, we've had more hospitalization for attempts than I remember for my first 10 years of education. Now, I'm going to say that with a couple caveats. Utah has a higher suicidal ideation rate than most other states for whatever reason. Could be altitude, could be Mormons. Combination. Um, combination thereof. All the, all the Mountain West has a really high suicide rate amongst both adults and teens, actually. Um, but the, it's still nationwide. I've looked at the statistics. It's gotten really bad. And what's interesting about that for me is that I'm not seeing a whole lot being done about it. Not really. And in fact, um, everything we try to do about it now is being sucked into a culture war. Give me an example. Um, what do you think social and emotional learning was about? Mm. That wasn't about like, that wasn't about um, like trying to turn the frogs gay, as uh, as uh, Rick DeSantis might be implying. It was about trying to lower the teen suicide rate. That's its aim. Now it also has other values plugged into that, and I'm going to also say I'm not sure it works. I'm quite honest about that. They, I, I, they always say the research shows that this stuff works. And I'm like, why then is the suicide rate continuing to go up? Um, but um, as soon as we tried to do like as soon as that became a big push, it was tied into, uh, quote, LGBTQI mm-hmm. issues. Um, because, you know, there's a strong overlap there. And then immediately um was made into a culture war issue by like moms for liberty and utah parents united and stuff like that so 
a bunch of rules now have been passed that we can't use that language in anything we do. Just like you mentioned DEI experts, where we ban that. Your school year. district? There's no state DEI. No, the oh, state wow. of Utah. The state of Utah banned all DEI initiatives. I mean, all that means that they're mm. just going to rename it, frankly. <laughs> but, but still, those offices and whatnot, if they're if they're paid for by the government, they're going away. What do you think it is, Toussaint? Do you think we're lonelier, more atomized? I think that's definitely part of it. I think that the loneliness is not being adequately addressed. Mm-hmm. People are kind of making it seem like other things. Just because you're lonely doesn't mean that you're necessarily longing for a romantic sexual partner. True. Where, which is where a lot of the discussion gets funneled into. You could be looking just for friends somebody to go bowling with and that's not that's not addressed fit and fresh fresh and fit Mm -hmm. they're not addressing that that sort of thing is just really not in abundance and it's not it's not really being talked about well if you talk about it enough an app will be created so someone can have a bowling partner yeah, I mean, I was about to say, what what happens is it gets – I there was this big to-do for about a month, you know, because that's how the media cycle goes these days, right, about the National Happiness Survey or something that I saw about two years ago where everyone's like, we have mi- – like, everybody's got, like, a third of the friends they used to report at having 10, yeah. 15 years ago. Like, amongst all generational cohorts, amongst most most classes, not all, the rich still have more friends. Imagine that. Um but you know what i have said is it seems like if you're poor you get a cheap electronic substitute like i don't know uh a chat gpt friend or a chat gpt girlfriend to spy on you learn all your kings and blackmail you later yeah um uh or you get um uh you get this stuff becomes class goods that you need access for and it shows up even the way we talk about stuff like you know this is a dating thing and i apologize i don't want to derail um uh you constantly hear this stuff about how partners particularly male partners but in general need to better themselves and like get therapy and i'm like therapy is a class good you either have to have really good insurance or 150 dollars to 200 dollars to 800 dollars. that's fact yeah, I don't have money for that. That's what MPs yeah. for. Church is free. <laughs> and there's a lot of there's a lot of the discourse right now that reinforces that. Like, like I know that trauma dumping on people is not something people should do. But when you hear that discourse being reinforced on TikTok and picked up from therapy culture and then uh, distributed through the population. As it uh, okay, so you need to get therapy so you don't overburden your friends. Where I'm like, okay, I get not overburdening your friends, I do, right? Mm-hmm. But what you're basically saying is you need to pay for a professional confidant. That's yeah. frightening. I mean, therapy language is horrible, and it has infected way too many people that don't go to therapy or went one time. Uh, yeah, the tie this back to your essay. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to talk to you, MT. I'll not be sexist. That's okay. No, I was just saying, Jason should be mindful of of boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, don't trauma dump, Jason, on your audience. No. Um, <laughs> um, Sorry, audience. <laughs> I thought that's what you were here for. Um, <clears throat> but I started thinking about this, about, like, the, the, the way in which this actually is signifying a lot of the problems that you're talking about, Jason, that people have problems, but we're not talking about the actual root of the problems. I mean, even gun control. Let's say gun control, right? Yeah. Um, what's most gun control aimed at? Like automatic weapons, assault rifles, yeah. Yeah. that sort of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe some delay laws. Clips. How much is that going to change most shootings in the United States? Not at all. Very little. Like, like it might, it might have stopped some of the, some of the more sensational mass shootings. Yes, but uh, again, if the guns were procured legally anyway. Plus, you got to deal with all the guns just floating around. I mean, we have so many guns floating around; it's a problem for the countries around us. Yes, um, and I live in one. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> tell, tell people about Mexico's gun laws, Jason. Yeah, you can't have a gun here. Yeah, <laughs> can't have a gun in Mexico, but yeah, there's a lot of guns in Mexico. Yeah, I was about to say, if that lot of good it does, but yeah. <laughs> you, um, can, you can drive. I, I'm, I just, I'm going to shut up. Mexico's a wonderful country. At <laughs> least do a great job. Please don't search my car again like you guys did. Did you not have your requisite? Never mind. I'm going to not say that on air. That I had all there. the paperwork. They just, they searched my car so good, Derek. They found things I thought I lost. Well, I mean, that's good. That's good. Uh, I'm not going to say how I. I got out of those situations, so. Um. <laughs> you just strategically leave certain certain amounts of small uh, of mid-sized bills lost in your seats. Oh, you found five hundred pesos. What do you know? <laughs> yeah, you can just have it. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that that was I, I met a white family at a bar when I first moved down here, and they they've been living here for a while. They're like, big word of advice for you, young man: keep at least five hundred pesos on you at all times for the cops. Like, hell no, that sounds insane. But little that I I found out real quick, that's good advice. How much is that in in USD? Like close to thirty bucks. Not a lot. It's like thirty bucks. Thirty bucks. Yeah, it's it's not a lot. I mean, the thing about bribery in the U.S. is you have to be rich enough to do it legally. This is true. Here, it's a real different. I remember one day they were too tired to take Ben to the police station, so they just they were driving to the police station, and there's only one. (laughs) <laughs> they just said fuck it and they, like what do you got on you so Ben just gave whatever cash he had on him to get out of the ticket so but I mean what are we asking these kids to do like so we're asking them now to adjust to society through trying to get uh, therapy which they can't afford or can't get or maybe can get through their school counselors but it's going to be shitty because like a thousand kids need it um and that's how they, that's how they're being told to deal with their problems. Now, I'm not saying that kids that the kids today are dumb enough to to do that, you know. Um, peer counseling, good job. <laughs> um, Thank you, Ken, for the um, super chat. <laughs> <laughs> 
for those of you who, who uh, since I'm on the screen, I'll read it. Uh, my partner swears by peer counseling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know... I've been thinking about this failure to deal with this in our narratives because you're right. Like one of the things that drives all this is we don't want to look at like we have a massive gun industry. It existed originally to supply the government with weapons for expansion of the of the United States. That's how it came into being. Right. The bloody history of our colonization of the continent is where our gun industry comes from. But it didn't go away once that was over. (laughs) Like. (laughs) And and lo and behold, people realize, you know, I can make a lot of money selling, I don't know, nukes to the federal government and, you know, really, really big guns to them. But I got all these other guns that really aren't useful for warfare. Let's just dump You know, uh, if people are f- for their lives, there you go. People were, like, talking about, like, you know, the guns I kept. I kept a bolt action, not because I was, um, like, trying to, you know... Uh, uh, Dallas first war for worth people. Um, but because I actually like used to hunt, um, although there's probably better guns for that. I was just, that's what I was trained on. So that's what I used. Um, and that was, you know, a fairly legitimate way of getting protein in the 18th, 19th century. Right. Yeah. And also we have militias and, you know, if I have my way, we might have militias again, but, that required small arms. Today, I just always get when people are like government tyranny. I'm like, what is your even? What is your like? What is any of the weapons you can buy commercially, even automatics, going to do against a cluster bomb drone? Like it's time. Red Dawn, dude. It's all it's all Red Dawn all the time. It's all play military. But it kind of came to fruition for a little bit from January 6th. A little bit. It's never going to happen again. Um, yeah. Uh, for the audience, I no longer, for those who missed the early part of the thing, I no longer own the guns, I promise. <laughs> um, uh, so, although I probably shouldn't say that given as many enemies as I may sometimes make. Um, but in, in all seriousness, I think we, we just circle around the drain on this stuff. I mean, one of the things I've been trying to point out to people for years that comes up in your article, uh, Jason, is uh, the Dobbs decision stuff. Yeah. What incentive do the Democrats have to reverse Dobbs or to fix the Supreme Court if they think they can use it to motivate people to come out for elections, just like the Republicans have been able to use it occasionally for religious people in blue states. Until those people sorted themselves out. Like, so, you know, and you'll you'll actually notice the way Trump being, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say Trump is smart, but he has a certain reptile brilliance that people probably should not underestimate. Um, he's actually been trying to play both sides of this abortion stuff every time he gets asked a question because he knows that to push for the actual Republican maximalist position would not help him, but to concede that, you know, maybe, maybe we should go back to pre-Dobbs decision would also not help him. So he has to like thread this needle there, but the Democrats have what have a perfect thing to motivate people. And I mean, and God forbid the DSA has been claiming it as a victory lately, even though they're about to go 
bankrupt. I mean, never mind. I'm gonna shut up on that. Um, uh, but um, what what incentive would they have if they think it can motivate an electoral base to ever do anything about it? You know, none. And I think they've known this for a long time that there was more to gain by not doing anything than to do something, which is why Obama didn't do anything about it either. Nope. Um, so it, it's just always struck me as like, look at the incentives on the on the playboard. There's no incentive to fix any fucking thing, and particularly now. And what's the difference now? Local politics, no one pays attention to because the local media markets are totally falling apart. You and I have talked about this. We could not survive off of a local media market. No, no, Right? Um, nobody can. Daily weeklies, they're like 85% ads now, and they can't hire reporters for shit, and they're just like rerunning AI articles, right? Like. And you're lucky to get one in your city. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have that problem. You have the fact that, like, what does everyone want to focus on to get the most audience diffused across the planet are national and international issues. So there's no way to, like, build a base to start changing those national and international issues because you're trying to start at the wrong level of government. Mm -hmm. Um, And that benefits everybody. I mean, look, like, uh, Ryan Grimm wrote an article about AOC, like, you know, moving away from the Justice Democrats and the DSA, which, of course, that, I mean, if you didn't see that coming. But it makes perfect sense as a logical thing to do because they've served their purpose now, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And they created a narrative that reinvigorated what seemed to be a dead brand in the Democratic Party. Um, they built a brand. They built a new generation of progressives, just like the generation of progressives that gave us Nancy Pelosi in the first place from the 70s into the 80s, right? Um, that came in the opposition to Reagan. Thanks. When you think about this, what is the incentive to do? I'm not, you know, whether or not AOC was sincere um, is neither here nor there, really. All the incentives are for this to happen, all right? And there's nobody who really is in a place to do a whole lot of anything about it, all right? Why? Because what are you going to do? Are you going to try to go into the party? Let's say you go into the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. all right? You, you just drill into the Democratic Party hardcore, all right? Uh do that whole Seth Ackerman uh, 2016, we're going to dirty break. Although, by the way, if you're actually going to dirty break, you don't announce it in Jack of the Night. <laughs> whatever. Um, Oops. Uh, but but it, let's say you do that and, and you really build that in, you're going to hit a wall. All right. And that wall is called the DSA has $5 million. It costs $15 million to get your ass on every ballot in the United States for a federal a federal election. All right. The average mainstream presidential campaign spends $6 billion on it. All right. What on earth, even the largest nominally socialist organization, even if they drill into the Democratic Party, where are they going to get the money to really start 
buying these people back off because if you don't, someone else will. Well, let me ask you this question. 2016 and 2020, and let's say leading up to 2016, so that's about 2015 or so, Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders comes on the scene and he does something that we haven't seen since the 60s. And that's make socialism a cool word. And uh, he mm-hmm. starts talking about democratic socialism and DSA membership skyrockets during the Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. <clears throat> runs for, for election. Mm-hmm. After that last loss, it felt as if everybody was scrambling to figure out what to do. Like they needed someone to follow. They needed a leader. Um, or they needed a villain. Donald Trump plays kind of a, the perfect foil. Um, he doesn't mind being at best an anti-hero. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we can say he plays that role relatively well. Does a young burgeoning left in this current context need a figure like Bernie to rally around or do they need a figure like Trump to rally around against or do they need both (sighs) they need class independence for one thing honestly and that means they need institutions to do it um And that would actually mean that would be a long struggle. Um, Somebody like Bernie can help. Somebody like Trump can help. The one thing I can tell you, however, is in counter systemic movements, the right has an advantage because its win objective is easier. All it has to do is fuck things up or stay the same. That's it. That's all it's got to do. That's all it's promising. Right? Like the left just strategically any left not just a socialist left any left necessarily is promising more than that all right so you automatically are starting out with a harder game now i know that makes people think oh varn thinks the right's always going to win no the right does not always win in fact in the long run having a positive program actually puts you probably in a little bit better of a situation and who had that during most of the 20th century civil rights liberals they did they did you know we, we like it or not they did it with communists and stuff helping them. But well, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about that. We're coming up on 30 years since Proposition 187 mm-hmm. passed in California. It never got implemented. Um, it got fought at the Supreme Court level. And then when the next governor came in, uh, Gray Davis, he decided not to, to try to press it with the Supreme Court and just let it go. But that was a proposition in California, which was going to roll back tons of immigrant rights that weren't going to have the right to work. They were going to arrest them uh, at job sites. They weren't allowed to get any, uh, even go to public school. Um, And there was an ad that ran, this is 1994. There was an ad that ran in 94 and it went, there's an invasion in California. It's illegal immigrants. And that's how they were referred to. This undocumented language is relatively, as Varn will tell you, relatively new language. Um, for mm-hmm. the longest time, even if you were on the right side of the argument, you probably still said illegal. 
Um, but because of that legislation, it caused and, – and here's a caveat. And maybe you know this, Varn, because you know a lot of things. Maybe you know this, Tucson, because you know a lot of things. The guy that originally put the bill together was an aspiring politico that I guess lived near some political consultants. And he was like, I want to get a proposition through. And they're like, we got to find something that people want to talk about. And he had gotten screwed over by a contractor who was Canadian. And he assumed the Canadian contractor was in California illegally. So he said, what about immigration? He tells these these people about what happened to him. They're like, well, go down and see what you can do. Get some signatures or something. And he ended up getting all these signatures when he asked the question about how people felt about illegal immigration. I believe he lived in Orange County. If you guys don't know, Orange County is a very conservative county south of L.A. and north of San Diego County, um, which is where Disneyland is. And uh, <clears throat> so the original bill that he wanted passed had nothing to do with immigrants from Mexico it was about a Canadian that fucked him over. But anyway, it ends up being a very racist law aimed at mm-hmm. uh, Mex- mostly Mexican-Americans, say Latin, Latin American uh, or Latin residents of California. And it passed overwhelmingly 59 to, to 41. Uh-huh. And it's the 40th anniversary of that bill passing. And what it did was it caused Latin immigrants still in the, the, the state to organize and rally around getting legislation passed, like getting a driver's license if you're undocumented, being able to go to school if you're undocumented, being able to get housing if you're undocumented. Um, but now here we are 40 years later. And we're starting to see a rollback of all these gains that we got when the bad man was in office. And that bad man was Pete Wilson. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. A little later. But as people think about California being this constant blue paradise of liberalness, I always say, eh, kind of some of the worst presidents in modern history are governors of California, Nixon and Reagan. And you know, it's still a relatively new thing that California is quote unquote blue in my lifetime. I can literally And only really in the urban areas, yeah. right? Like like if you go up near Mancino or, or Mendocino or like yeah, it's a little different. It's just a little different. The north or the center or the center is where you get... <laughs> <laughs> the center of the state, like beware. Just beware. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I live in Gomorrah in Utah. For people who don't know, like Salt Lake City might as well be like the Mission District of San Francisco, <laughs> as far as the rest of the state's concerned. But like, um, it's, you know, it's it's. It, I find it interesting that here we are, forty years later, from this kind of landmark legislation in California that caused, you know, millions of people to rally around. Tupac puts it in a rap song. He talks about Pete Wilson and Proposition 187 in one of his biggest singles, "To Live and Die in L.A." You know what? You know what I find interesting about this? I tell this story a lot, but I way back in the day, I read this book by Naomi Klein. You might be familiar with it. It's called The Shock Doctrine. Yes. I consider it one of the worst books ever written on the left. Mm-hmm. 
but its history, despite its understanding of its own history, is actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, and goes through how, in all of these democratic cases, um, you had what was opposition movements for either liberalization of Soviet bloc countries or Peronist movements or what are are post Pinochet left movements, etc. And almost all of them, they actually end up implementing neoliberalism even more than the right did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, I talked to you before about how Draper writing about this in about California specifically, um, about how there's a certain amount of logic to the way capital works that lead you into game traps. Mm. Uh, Biden's taking one right now in immigration. So um, we've talked about how Obama, Obama, you know, was way more active in actually deporting people than Trump probably was. Agreed. Uh, his numbers are higher. Um, uh, the, you know, Trump was meaner about it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He, he made all the policies shittier. But the policies were, largely speaking, Obama-era policies based off of Bush-era authorizations. Um, and and so Biden basically doesn't do a whole lot about that. He, he plays around with it for the first two months, realizes it's going to be very unpopular in the border states, um, and that it's not gaining him any traction with the, with, uh, the Latin community because the Democrats can't pass anything through Congress. So it's showing them to be weak. And polls are showing this immediately. I remember hearing about this in like 2020. Like it's, like it's almost as like before he's even in fucking office yet. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so he reverses all that and basically maintains Trump era policies, just makes them a little bit nicer. You know, less less you know, it is you know that meme we've seen where you just paint the flag yeah. on the drone? <laughs> it was that. Like um, but the this part of that that people miss is by doing that what then happens next the the delusional discourse around the right is going to stay what it is they're going to claim that he's letting in millions of immigrants or whatever and like you know hordes of mi of whatever gang of probably hamas influenced mi16 gangs from nicaragua or something um and something ridiculous and untrue and they're and then these governors are going to take a stand about it they're going to figure out a legal loophole, and this one, this one, this was a legal loophole that I find interesting because I'm not sympathetic to the conservative states, but it is interesting the way things are federalized and statized. So, like, enforcement is a federal responsibility, but actually dealing with the immigrants is a state responsibility, and the feds don't have to fund it, and largely don't. So, you know, what what do these states do? Well, they break federal law, but they know the feds aren't going to really enforce federal law. And they're going to bust all these people up to to states that have laws that they don't ever really intend on using. So there's like New York has a pretty generous law to get people into housing um, to keep people from becoming evicted, unhoused popsicles yeah. Yeah. in the in the winter. Um, but that means that you can overflood that system with dumping a whole lot of immigrants there. And you've already said that you're a sanctuary city. Um, And so you dump that on there to force a blue state governor to change their rhetoric or, or a mayor. That's predictable. It's or mayor. Yeah. Well, well, Trump tried it. I write about this in the piece. Trump tried it in 2018. 
And his advisors at the time were like, we don't even think it's legal for you to do it. Don't, and it's not in the budget for you to do it. Because another thing people always forget is like big immigration sweeps are rather costly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why they don't happen as much as you think. Uh, so he doesn't do it. But these governors was Abbott, DeSantis, and who's in Arizona? Oh, fuck. I know her name. Anyway, um, I believe they do it. Or someone else. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. But I know there's three governors that did it. And they dumped a bunch of people in New York, and they dumped about 30,000 people in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Originally, this show was actually going to be about that, but our guest Cedric Johnson couldn't make it. He'll, he'll be on next week to talk about this. And the black response has been frightening. Yep. There's like a fight over resource. And on top of that, the response from the Latin community in Chicago that was already there, they're pissed off. And you're seeing the same thing in California. There is a statistic. Hold on. I have it right here. Um, where'd it go? Oh, maybe I didn't write it down. I feel so stupid. Oh, um, a recent L.A. Times study asked California residents about undocumented, undocumented immigrants. And overwhelmingly, 63% of Latinos surveyed said they felt undocumented, undocumented citizens were a burden. No, they are, unless the federal government's going to pay for them. I don't really know how else to put it. Like, like the, the way that we, like, what is our federal government in the United States? It's an insurance company that kills brown people in other countries. Sounds fair. Like, that's pretty much what it is, right? Like, um, which is also why the insurance is viable. Um, so... So all this municipal stuff happens at the state level, mm-hmm. but the enforcement is the federal level, mm-hmm. but paying for it, like it, 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 it sets incentivizes for people to create nightmares for each other. Right. Mm-hmm. W- when have you seen a leftist realistically talk about reforming federalism? And I mean, the reformist leftists. it's not that people want to overthrow the government. I mean, more power to them. They know this is a problem, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they're going to overthrow the government, but, you know, they at least realize the problem here. Um, but a reformist leftist, they might talk about, like, oh, we're going to abolish the Senate. They, they're doing that because they're only focusing on national politics. But are they looking at state-level politics? Mm-hmm. No, until they want to, like, I don't know, have California try to pull some weird local federalist stuff, but then fund it off of capital gains tax. So as soon as times are hard, all the social services will be unfunded again. Like we're seeing. I don't know where that's happened. Yeah. I mean, we're literally um, seeing it now in California, right? Right. So, so this experiment people have had during Trump on like left wing federalism mm. has also been a disaster because it it plays to these problems, right? It plays to these problems extremely. There's no talk. I mean, people will talk about it only in terms of electoral calculus, right? They'll talk about how it's undemocratic that we have all these states. But they're not looking at how administratively impossible it is. And there's no incentive for anyone to fix it. And there's also no incentive for anyone to let the other side fix it because no one trusts each other. And they shouldn't. Right. I mean, so, yes, of course, the game's going to feel the same. I mean, what I have found amazing is that American politics after the the 50s feels like it's on a trajectory, even before neoliberalism, guys. Like, OK, I think 
we we can think that neoliberalism is what brought all this about. No, this has been around for a long time. It's been on trajectory where you can start seeing these things being carved out. As soon as you start, like before the 1950s, it's hard to even talk about what American conservatism is, like because I guess we're all kind of weird. <laughs> um, but you know, there's a workers' movement, and there's everything else, right? Or there's a populist movement, and there's everything else. There's the struggle for black liberation, and there's everything else. But but a conservative movement is really a post-World War II phenomenon. Um, but you look at it and you can just see these these things play out. Like I want to I want to point out why people feel so hopeless right now. A lot of the shit that we were told was going to happen under Trump has happened at state levels under Biden anyway. Yep. Why can you how can you convince people to give a shit when you've proven you can't do anything about that for large swaths of the population? <clears throat> like I, I don't know how like how you can how people can motivate people with that. Like and so the, as long as you stay wedded to that system, I don't see a way out. Toussaint, do you have some uh, more dour news? Um, I'm just noticing this comment. I'm going to put it on the screen. Jesus. Black people are being pushed out of NYC. Keep them there instead of helping migrants. Yikes. Popular sentiment. I'm That's sure. the sentiment in Chicago, right? That's, exactly. I mean, look, when you have thousands, tens of thousands of people dumped on your city, it's not, first of all, it's not that easy. And how do you help out all the black people? Not all the black people in New York are poor. Not right. all the black people in New York need a handout. Um, not all the black people are are displaced. I haven't done a New York. Like sixteen percent of them are right in New York. I don't know. I'm just saying, like nationally, like if you look at black poverty, it's like been it's, relatively stable at like like sixteen to twenty yeah. percent for like two decades. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Uh, with the poverty level. I haven't looked it up recently, but I, I know what last time I looked it up, it hadn't changed. Tucson, Tucson lives in in, uh, in uh, Good Times territory. Tell us what it looks like down there, Tucson. Good Times territory. Well, there's plenty of black people here moving on up with me. Do some black people play-by-play for us. <laughs> well, there's Fred down by the liquor store. He's always there out front, always there with a nice hello for you. I have nothing to say about this part of the show. <laughs> Every time Toussaint says her super has to help her out with something, I just picture Bookman coming to her apartment with some dirty ass coveralls. <laughs> She's like, My super is late coming to help me open the door. I'm like, you're super. I'll get. I'll give you the inverse of that, uh, actually, because here in, in Utah, uh, our minority groups are Polynesian and Latin and and like Somali and Ethiopian. Right. So we have a black population, but it's mostly African. There are African-Americans here when different they state like organizations went out. Yeah. Um, when we different state yourself. organizations came here to build DI programs. They brought in black specialists from outside. Okay. That has led to real anti-black sentiment even here, where there's not a lot of black people, because it's like, well, you know, you want to have diversity in the community, but like you're bringing groups that aren't 
really predominant here to represent all the diversity in the community. Don't white people realize there's other people than black people? Mm. You know, Salt Lake City is only 60% white. Like, I I have no idea what the black population is, but I'm guessing it's under five. Varn, you have to read this super chat. Rachel Denzel has a bad way for <laughs> Rachel Denzel has a bad way um, You know, I, I'm seeing some comments in the chat about people that have faced uh, homelessness. And so I want to first off, as someone that has dealt with it myself, I hope things get better for you. I've been there. It sucks. And I don't know what to say. Uh, thank you for watching. I, I hope this something to ease your day a little bit hope you get some chuckles out of this um but uh but but in all seriousness the win that the democrats were able to get from fighting against trump's rhetoric right child separation kids in cages i'm going to snatch up all these murderers and rapists um before the show i listened to a podcast from 2019 the LA Times did on the history of Proposition 187. And at the very end of it, they actually interviewed Pete Wilson, who at the time was like 86. And one of his ending comments were Trump was right. There were murderers and rapists. It's like, Jesus Christ, Pete. <laughs> you really just going to double the down? He took home. Okay. That's, that's all you got from it. But, 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 that whole we're going to have sanctuary cities has bit them in the ass so hard because they didn't foresee. And who really would have that level of clairvoyance to go, well, we shouldn't do this because of X, Y, and Z. There was also people fighting. And we have to also um, acknowledge that people have been fighting for years. And this was fertile ground for them to be able to get a lot of legislation passed um, to make their city sanctuary cities. Chicago is just the perfect ground because you have a brand new mayor. Brand new progressive mayor. That's a, that. that's a little, as a lot of people say, out of his depth. Mm. And he got 30,000 people dumped on his city. And they're not all living high on the hog. Right. There's definitely outdoor encampments of these large swaths of, uh, of, of uh, undocumented people. So it's a it's a it's a horrible problem, but it's also a problem the United States has their hand in. You know, these people's homes weren't destroyed and governments overturned, you know, in a vacuum. And there's still tons of people at the border that can't get through. As someone that lives by the border, I see it whenever I go to the border. And there's tons of people even more at the border south of you that can't get through. Despite all yeah. the ammo said, he's still doing the U.S.'s bidding yeah. on that. Um, you know, he might protest just like Vicente Fox might complain about Trump, even though he's basically – never mind. I'm not going <laughs> to go off on the actual politics. This is not how much Mexican politics sucks. This is how much American politics sucks. <laughs> um, uh, um, nonetheless, I mean, like – there's a very real sense that there's a public face to all this and there's real politics behind all this and the real politics is remarkably stable. And 
Um, one of the funny things I was thinking the other day that, that I don't think trucks and that no one. I don't think Project 2025 is real because if you were actually going to go after the deep state, you would not publish your plans a year and a half before you took power so that they would know it was coming and they could get the assassins ready. Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, not, I didn't, you know, I'm just in a hypothetical world, let's say in Turkey or something, um, you would not do that. But let's say you do. I mean, one of the things that I was realizing, you were talking about these sweeps. Yeah. Um, somebody was, was posting how many people it would take to do the sweep taken in project 2025, what Trump is promising. It would take them hiring something like 250,000 border control agents. Uh, hey, in addition to what we already have. Some, someone wrote a super chat. Lithium 19 says older gens and many are grandfathered in. It's very bad for a lot of people that worked hard under 43 years old. I disagree, Jason. I don't know what you disagree with. This is about, um, talking about New York city, black people getting displaced disagrees with your idea that i guess some black people don't need the assistance and will be fine i, I think he's trying I to say, say that? that i think he's trying to say that plenty of black people will be displaced but did i say that black people don't need everybody no. needs some sort of assistance right i'm worried about people like the cost of living um and housing here in Utah has almost doubled in five years. The cost of living Literally. has raised. I, I I have a friend here in Rosarito who has to leave because it's about to be tourist season. And his landlord told him that even though you signed a contract, you know, Libertarian California, even though you signed a contract for a year, you got uh, a few months to get the fuck out. That's crazy. And we're raising the rent anyway. So he just moved to TJ. He's taking off next week. But um, yeah, if things continue, when I go back to Mexico to retire, it's going to be all Americans. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, you just got to go like deep in the center of the country. Look, man, I don't want anyone to gonna think. See. I think that you know, all Negroes are fine. But I, I guess when we're talking about resources for the unhoused, I don't work in New York. I've worked in California and I worked in the Bay Area. So I don't know what New York looks like when it comes to their resources for for unhoused people. Um, I don't think anybody has a whole lot right now. No. I feel like all that stuff is taxed. Like, like I mean, yeah, yeah, we like in Utah. I look, they're putting up housing stock so fast. I'm worried about it because we're going to run out of water. Oh, but, that's, that's uh, one of the issues that we have here. We have a new build because they just let Americans build anywhere. Again, Libertarian California. And municipal water started in this area, Varn, literally a few months before I moved in. So, yeah, water shortage is the thing. Our water was shut off for like four or five days the other week. Um, it's it's insane. There's a I got to show you the picture there in Tijuana. There's a there's a um, Amazon factory. Have you seen that picture, Vard? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Tucson, have you seen the picture? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. I wish you could pull it up. It's an Amazon factory. And TJ has these little, I don't want to call them favelas because I think that's a Brazil thing. I don't know what you would call it out here. There's just these houses. Rancheros. rancheros. They're okay. rancheros. People just put up little houses that look like it's 
pallets and whatever wood they could find. They take. Yeah, there's no running water to them, no electricity. No, if, like, if you can find yeah. power somewhere, you tap it. But yeah, um, we had really bad rain recently. So a lot I'll of those houses, a lot of those people, their houses just flew off the side of the mountain. But there's this this massive Amazon warehouse, and they built it right next to one of these neighborhoods where people don't have running water, and these shack houses. And it's it's the most surreal, disgusting thing I've ever seen. I see it. Can you? Uh, I can see it. I I looked up the pictures. There's no way you can share it. There's no way you can share it on the screen. Um. Yeah. Hang on. It's <clears throat> it's just some people are clear. We're talking about Mexico here, not the United States. It's such a sign of the times because the U.S. doesn't look much different in that regard, especially when I go to places like, you know, Los Angeles, you know, parts of downtown San Diego, of course, where I'm from. Get yourself to the south. Holy shit. Like you see, like I was back home recently and it was bad. Mm hmm. Like it was very bad. Um, oh, Tucson found the, the photo. I mean, it, it's look at this. That that's right next to the Amazon warehouse. That gives they give no fucks. You know, it's <clears throat> it's part of the discourse that you don't really hear when people talk about immigration, when people talk about anything political. Capitalism is never uttered. I mean, I don't know. I, I hear I hear liberals at the New York team talk about oh how capitalism is bad, but it's like this thing that they say without any context or what they mean by it. Like, I, like I do think it's very hip and de rigueur for people to complain about capitalism, but not really look at what they're complaining about at all. Exactly. You know? Yeah, I think in that sense I agree with you. I just it's interesting because it's even made anti-capitalist politics harder in a weird way because like. If everyone's throwing it around and it's like meaningless all the time, you know, I used to complain about this with Bernie too. I know Bernie made socialism cool, but he also made socialism not really mean anything. Oof, yeah. So I know that's probably unpopular amongst your crowd. But, yeah, um, like like we have a different crowd. Go fuck yourself. I do have a different crowd. <laughs> we don't have a different crowd. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah, I want to I want to think about this though in in a way because there's a lot of discussion about immigrants and like shaming people about their stance on this that and the other. My point is, and it was this way too, with talking about like relatively poor white immigrants from the southeast who saw massive waves of immigration they had not seen before in the aughts and aught teens. Um, I do not think the racism is right or correct. Obviously, mm -hmm. right. I do not think we can excuse it in the case of a lot of middle class white people as just being the working poor either. Mm -hmm. I want to be very clear on that because that was an out that a lot of people tried to take like J.D. Vance or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there is a truth that that it's both 
transparently obvious when you think about it, but it's been backed up by pupil after pupil after pupil, that when there are scarce resources, people become tribalistic. And in America, there are two ways to break down tribes. One is political, one's racial. You know, we're seeing that. So again, what are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, we're seeing that right now with this kind of quote unquote fight for resources when it comes to Chicago and Chicago handled it really badly. I can't speak for New York. Yeah. Is New York handling it equally as bad Tucson, in your opinion? I don't think so. Um, Chicago did it first. Mm-hmm. And so I think we kind of watched that. It's, it doesn't seem to have boiled over the way it did in Chicago, the way I've seen. Although Eric Adams has had to like called for getting rid of that law that protects homeless people. Eric Adams is a nut, dude. He is nuts. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. And and he's and he's it's, you know leading with all of hip hop behind him. All fifty years. All fifty years of hip hop is behind him. KRS one, you know, the wokest man alive. Loves him some Eric. Remember Karis when had a song called Whoop Whoop? That's the sound of the bully or sound of the bunnies. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. He did another song for Eric Adams with that. Yeah. It, we don't talk about him anymore. It's, it is a hell of a time. We're going to talk about that Thursday. That's going to be a fun <laughs> show Thursday. Buckle up for Thursday. Um. Well, but but seriously, yeah. this is this is uh this is insane to me that you know when we we right now in this hour and twenty two minutes that we've been on on air and I hope you guys are enjoying free champagne brought to you by Varn Vlog and TIR. Um, yeah. We're still going to the champagne room, don't and, you worry. And by the way, when I say your crowd, I just assume your group is less nerdy than mine. You're just saying black people. This That's what all. you really mean. Ooh. We're your people, Warren. Black people, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> My people. Black I'm not going to lie, dude. I saw some now, I saw some comments and there's there's a few people in the world that actually have their picture on their profiles for social media and I saw some comments that was mm-hmm. black people. I was like, I've arrived. <laughs> Whenever I see black people leave comments, I get so excited. Even if it's mean. No. I'm like, oh, any press is good press. Any black press is good I just, black I press. I started doing this show with <laughs> niggas, phone niggas. <laughs> and then you invited and then, me. And, and, then, all went, and then you killed Greg Tate. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my first time on your show. That was my but second time on your show. Hey. <laughs> You're blaming me. I want all the props for that. Was it the nation he wrote that piece about Afro pessimism? Or the New York Times? It was, it was, I think it was, God, it was was a big big ass magazine. It was. This is a weird way to settle a podcast. (laughs) He died flexing like before I go, fuck you niggas. And he's. I just shouldn't have said anything about <laughs> that's, that's what <laughs> talking about my people for once. That uh, was like, and then somebody says back in the Sean King days when Derek had the short hair. 
<laughs> I think Gene Boshlon put Sean King on the phone. <laughs> he did. So back when I was on dating sites, they actually had a woman say, do you know you look like Sean King? And I was like, fuck. <laughs> no escape. Fuck. <laughs> it's not just Jason. I thought I could just blame Jason. Uh, nope. You can't do what all of my ex-wives have done. But seriously, thank you guys for hanging out with us. I Look, we definitely don't have the answers to all these questions, but I think the discourse around something like what happened in Kansas City, if you're not talking about the capitalist productions of guns and the industry built around it, then what are you really talking about? <laughs> I would love that hashtag to go fucking go go. Every time Doug Lane says something, you should write blame Jason on there. <laughs> but yeah, because they're blaming you. They're no longer blaming yeah. me. <laughs> they're blaming <laughs> me. You know what they're blaming me for? Finkelstein. <laughs> no, I mean, that I probably is your fault, to that. be fair. <laughs> but, but yeah, that, um, oh, and, and if you're talking about immigration, like the way these conversations are around immigration, no one wants open borders. I don't think anyone ever thought about it, like what it meant. Like <laughs> crazy ass kids, though, barring out your catfish and BLM activists. Because I nut quick. Oh fucking shit! Oh man, I am. Uh... I'm going to need some more. Time. Um, <laughs> well, look, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Uh, Derek, thank you for for hanging out. If you guys are watching on Varn Vlog, are we going to, uh, am I going to send you the link and you're going to put the. For We're my patrons, patrons okay. yeah. Um, so if you're a patron with Derek Varn, stay tuned. We're going to go to the champagne room. Derek's going to give you the link. You can watch the show. If you're not a patron for Derek Varn and you're watching the show on Varn's channel, we'll sign up. It's extremely affordable. You get bonus content. And from my understanding, you get to have a one-on-one -on -one podcast with Derek Varn at a certain level. Am I right? Yeah. If you if you uh, join at the $10 level, you can get a one-on-one -on -one podcast with me once a year. Now, you, you, you know what's funny, though? Few people actually take it up because I guess they think I'm mean. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's a, it's actually funny. I keep on I I email them regularly. Like, does anyone want it? And they're like, no. I'm like, okay. Did I yell at you in a live chat once on Jason's show or was it on my show? <laughs> Probably. I wasn't like in the old days when I was on Zero and like fighting with the entirety of the Zero audience. Like, well, the Zero audience was an audience, wasn't it? You know, it, it we started was on an Zero. Audience. And, oof, was an audience. <laughs> oh. <laughs> This sounds like podcast payola. <laughs> People pay extra for the barn struggle session. What is if it Gene calls me? Everyone's left wing dominatrix. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you come out in that gimp mask in the one on one, you know, what are we going to expect? All right. You, um, you're challenging me, Jason. There might be a surprise in the in the campaign. <laughs> when I come visit in Utah. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if you come visit in Utah, we're gonna have to like. You definitely need to stay on my side of town. Oh Jesus <laughs> Christ! 
I'm kidding. It's not that bad. You, here. You're you're not. I've been to Utah. I know you I, have. Too many times. I still want to find out who stole my hats. We had a bunch of hats from the band. I was in with my ex, and someone stole the whole box of hats. What was the, what was on the hat so I can look for him? I mean, it's probably what 15, 20 years ago, but you never know. <laughs> no, it was <laughs> maybe like eight years ago. Do I have the logo behind me? I don't have the logo behind me, but it's it's this it's this geisha in a pentagram um, holding a gun. And it's okay, I would steal those hats too. That's, that's a dope ass hat, right? <laughs> <laughs> they were fucking dope. We were all stoked for the tour. We we're like, we got hats. Um, if you're watching the show on This Is Revolution and you're a patron, the link should already be up on Patreon. If you are not a patron, if you enjoy what we do here, if you want to go into the champagne room tomorrow after we have this discussion with me, Pascal, Bert Cooper, and Jason England, that's going to be a fun talk. We are going to kick Black History Month off with the most light-skinned people on one show. At the end of Black History Month. At the end of Black History, Black History Month. We're going to grab we'll all the light mark on, on February 28th. On <laughs> February 29th. On February 29th, we're going to make sure we get all the light-skinned black people. <laughs> like a Julian Bond. <laughs> Cornell West. All of them in a big old light-skinned pot of light-skinnedness. The ghost of... Michael Jackson. <laughs> Prince. Like all these light skin. <laughs> Lionel Richie's going to show up. Like all these light skin. Smokey Robinson. Just... <laughs> but seriously, if you like what we do here, become a patron. Uh, Patreon.com uh, slash Bitter Lake Presents for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. It can all be yours. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show. And you have access to the champagne room as well. I'm trying to hit the outro. There we go. All right. We'll see you guys in the champagne room shortly. I hope you enjoyed all this free champagne. We are out. <laughs>